Hello and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's show, we'll speak with activist Matthew Brett about the challenges currently facing the Occupy Wall Street movement and about the massive student strike happening in his home province of Quebec. We'll talk to Gordon Laxer about how the Alberta tar sands industry will likely cope with the Obama administration's postponement of a decision on a controversial pipeline project. And writer and broadcaster Leslie Hughes will give us the lowdown on the most censored stories of the past year. First, here are the alert headlines for the week of November 17, 2011. Last week, around 200,000 students in Quebec protested the provincial government's plans to increase tuition fees. Quebec has enjoyed frozen tuition fees for over 40 years. The proposed increases will raise fees by $325 each year until 2016. Rather than demand more substantial government investment in post-secondary education, university and college administrators, are passing the cost off to students, many of whom already struggle to afford tuition fees and the costs associated with completing a university or college program. In the early hours of last Tuesday morning, the Occupy Wall Street protesters camped in Zuccotti Park were suddenly evicted by police. There were reports of arrests and violence, although many details remain unclear, due at least in part to the refusal by police to allow media into the area to document the eviction. The Occupy protesters went straight to court and received a temporary injunction allowing them back into the park with their tents until a hearing could be had and a decision made. Despite the order, Occupy protesters were still prevented from returning to the park. Later that day, a New York Supreme Court judge overturned the injunction, siding with the city that protesters may return to the park only without tents or sleeping bags. Judge Stallman ruled that the park owner Brookfield had a right to keep the park hygienic, safe, and lawful, and protesters' right to free speech did not entitle them to stay. Concerns over the environmental impact on the sand hills in Nebraska have delayed the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. Environmentalists have long been protesting the impact of the pipeline in both the U.S. and Canada, with recent protests outside the White House and on Parliament Hill ending in arrests. While Finance Minister Jim Flaherty is not sure the project will survive this delay, Prime Minister Harper is confident the project will eventually continue. A bill aimed at restricting workers' rights in Ohio was repealed last week. Bill SB-5 aimed to destroy the collective bargaining rights of Ohio's public employees, ban public sector strikes, and eliminate automatic or step pay increases. Supporters championed the bill as a cost-cutting tool for cities. There was significant public opposition to the bill, with over one million signatures on a petition to put SB-5 on the ballot as a referendum. The bill was voted down 62% to 38%. Halifax Mayor Peter Kelly ordered police to forcefully remove Occupy Nova Scotia protesters last week. Many instances of police brutality were reported to media and 14 arrests were made. Organizers are now questioning Kelly's legal authority to evict occupiers and calling for the resignation of the Halifax Mayor. Police in London, Ontario, forcefully dismantled tents and evicted occupiers last week. 
Despite an eviction notice for occupiers in Regina, organizers say as of Monday, no tickets were issued and the occupation will continue. Many other Canadian cities are investigating whether they can legally issue an eviction notice to occupiers. Two Conservative senators have successfully avoided charges in a lawsuit between Elections Canada and the Conservative Party of Canada over illegal election financing. By pleading guilty to lesser charges of exceeding spending limits and not filing all expenses, the senators avoided one year in jail. They now must pay $52,000 in fines. Elections Canada filed a suit against the Conservative Party of Canada for exceeding spending limits through an illegal financing scheme in the 2006 federal election. Last week, Freedom Wave to Gaza activists were informed by an Israeli judge they could be held in prison for two months without a trial or charges. To avoid this, they were told they could sign a statement saying they voluntarily and illegally entered Israel despite being violently beaten, abused, robbed, kidnapped and forced into Israel while on their way to Gaza. While many activists have returned to their countries, many remain in Israel, including two Canadians. Meanwhile, Harper and Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird reiterated their commitment to supporting Israel at a UN General Assembly meeting last week, saying one-sided approaches to Israeli issues are generally unbalanced and do not seek to address the true actions and responsibilities of all parties. Those are the alert headlines for the week of November 17, 2011. Now for Around the Left for the week of November 17, 2011. Indigenous Sovereignty Week gathers people together and works toward building a cross-Canada movement for Indigenous rights, self-determination and justice for Indigenous communities. Indigenous Sovereignty Week Toronto 2011 began this past week on November 14th and will continue until November 27th. This year's theme is Celebrating Community Victories, Standing Up to the Harper Threat. For more information on events and locations, go to www.defendersoftheland.org slash Toronto. The Conservative government in Canada is promising four years of anti-immigrant, anti-poor, anti-worker, anti-queer, anti-woman, anti-environment, pro-surveillance, pro-prison, pro-military and pro-big oil policies. At the same time, a new spirit of resistance is again moving into North America. Over the summer, several open assemblies were held to discuss how to respond to the conservative agenda and build a society based on global economic justice and self-determination. Please join us on November 21st to brainstorm strategy and action and to get involved in organizing a mass teach-in, a pan-Canadian day of economic disruption, and a direct action convergence. For more information, email P-R-E-N-O-N-S-L-A-C-A-P-I-T-A-L-E at riseup.net. Meals for a Mind-Free World, a spaghetti supper fundraiser for the Canadian Landmine Foundation, will take place November 22nd at 6 o'clock p.m. at the Transcona Memorial United Church in Winnipeg. The guest speaker will be Wendy Hayward, a board member of the Canadian Landmine Foundation who spent part of the last year working in Kandahar. Tickets are $10 and can be ordered through the Transcona United Church office at 222-1331. From March 24th until October 31st, Canada was at war in Libya, a war which all three major political parties supported. 
How do anti-war activists assess this experience? Come hear Derek O'Keefe introduce a discussion of these issues at the next meeting of the International Solidarity Committee of the Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly. This meeting will take place on November 22nd from 7 o'clock p.m. to 9 o'clock p.m. at Asteria Suvlaki Place at 661 Danforth Avenue in Toronto. Derek is co-chair of StopWar.ca in Vancouver and is the former editor of Rabble.ca. For more information, email gtwa.isc at gmail.com. What does the new city budget mean for people in Scarborough? More cuts? Low-wage future for the next generation? On December 3rd at 1 o'clock p.m. until 4 o'clock p.m. at Don Montgomery Community Centre, 2467 Eglinton Avenue East in Toronto, come to a public forum to find out how the city budget will affect us and our communities. Lunch will be served at 12 o'clock noon. For more information, check out facebook.com slash respect Scarborough. On December 10th, come to a celebration of International Human Rights Day at Union Centre at 275 Broadway in Winnipeg. The keynote speaker will be Jerry Kaplan, former CUSO field officer, author, weekly Globe and Mail columnist, and featured television political analyst. His lecture, When Good People Do Bad Things, will be a part of the Lived Rights Lecture Series. Cash Bar opens at 5 o'clock p.m. with dinner at 6.30. The lecture begins at 7.30 with entertainment to follow. Tickets are $25 each, cash only, and can be reserved by email at qso.vsomb at gmail.com. That's all for Around the Left for the week of November 17th, 2011. With the Occupy movement... Fostering solidarity actions across North America and around the world, the state is fighting back. Earlier this week, the site that inspired the movement, that at uh, Zercotti Park in New York City, was evicted. And before that, campers in Occupy sites in Halifax and London were forced to leave. And still more locations are being threatened with eviction. So where do these evictions leave the movement? Is the movement particularly in Canada, resilient enough to withstand these and other challenges? To share his thoughts about these developments and to introduce us to more recent, a more recent popular uprising, the student strike in Quebec, we have with us on the line Matthew Brett. Matthew Brett is an organizer with the Forum to Resist the Conservatives. So uh, thanks for joining us, Matthew. It's good to be with you. Okay, uh, could you maybe tell us a little bit uh, about uh, these evictions, uh, uh, the, the ones that you know about? Uh, how, uh, as you see it, are civic authorities justifying these evictions? Right. Well, I can speak about uh, uh, the Occupy movement as uh, an occasional participant. I, I go on weekends, and uh, uh, I am with a contingent here in Montreal, so I know somewhat what's going on, but I'm not living on site. Uh, for the evictions uh, across North America and Europe, they, they all share a very common trend, uh, and that is they're first delegitimized the sites themselves. So the mayor of Vancouver, for example, uh, called the, the commune there uh, squalid, and you have constant reference to, to drug use um, and to violence and so on. 
they're legitimate concerns, but they're completely one-sided. Uh, and once the site has been sufficiently delegitimized, uh, you then have uh, overwhelming uh, police forces uh, entering the sites and physically dismantling uh, the, the the occupations piece by piece. Uh, what, in your opinion, are, are are there other reasons why these governments might seek to evict the occupiers? Yeah, I mean the the reasons cited are health and safety concerns, uh, and again, they're they're legitimate concerns, but they're being addressed on site. You have church groups there, intervention groups there, and, and the cities know this. Uh, so it's it's a political move. Uh, I think that's very clear to to many. Uh, the logic is to shut down uh, these spaces, uh, alternative spaces uh, of freedom of expression and debate. Uh, that, that's very clear to me. Mm -hmm. Do you find, uh, from what you've seen, that the force being used is uh, reasonable or proportional under the circumstances? No, I think it's it's absurd, uh, and the force is uh, overwhelming in, in all of the cases and unjustified. Um, they're, they're basically uh, physical expropriations uh, on public ground. Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> I believe it's the uh, Canadian Association of, of Civil Liberties, maybe you'd have to, co to check the name, but uh, they're questioning the uh, charter validity of these expropriations. Uh, they issued a statement today. Uh, people have the freedom to assemble and the freedom to speak, and that right is being uh, physically violated by police force uh, with the backing of uh, the state. So it's uh, it's really absurd what's happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, what about media coverage of these, mainstream media coverage of these evictions, uh, or the movement in general? Are you finding that uh, there are critical uh, elements that are being left out in the coverage? Yeah, well, certainly the, the coverage uh, has been uh, one-sided in terms of focusing, again, on those health uh, concerns and public safety concerns and violence and so on. Uh, there's absolutely no emphasis uh, on all of the positive uh, dynamics emerging from this movement. Uh, you go to any occupation in North America, and I can guarantee that there's uh, horizontal decision-making uh, going on, which is extremely encouraging and participatory. There's regular workshops, um, beautiful creative work going on on a daily basis. Uh, so these are extremely positive uh, movements in a, in a very disparaging time, uh, yet all of the emphasis has been placed on sort of uh, very unfortunate events. Let's, let's not forget that people have died at these sites, um, but at the same time, we, we have to look at the positive as well, and it's extremely encouraging uh, what's happening there. Mm -hmm. Now, w with these evictions taking place, uh, is there room in the movement, as you see it, for a more uh, perhaps fundamental shift in the, the tactics they're employing in order to draw more attention to the, the, the economic injustices that uh, seem to have instigated their creation? Yeah, it's a, that's a very important and, and difficult question to, to ask, I think. Uh, uh, we have to be talking about uh, these tactics and, uh, and the movement itself. Um, I, 
my view on this is that a, a key element, I think, is just to have a, a sustained presence there, uh, to hold regular workshops and, and popular events, uh, creative, artistic, and political political events and, and discussions, uh, in order to ensure that the existing sites uh, remain in place for as long as possible. The people living there want to stay there, and uh, they should have the right to do so. So that's something to me worth supporting, uh, and it can be done by uh, donating or showing up uh, and simply participating or holding events and workshops. Uh, tactically, the, the organizers themselves on site, I think they would be the people to ask regarding uh, where to go from here. Um, but uh, they seem very certain that, uh, at least here in Montreal, that uh, they're here to stay, uh, and I would support that. Now, there's also uh, another uh, major uh, uprising uh, taking place in your uh, home province of Quebec, and that's the uh, the student strike. Could you maybe give us uh, a little bit of a primer for the benefit of our, our listeners outside of Quebec about what, what are the main issues behind that? Certainly. Um, we actually had, uh, I believe it was the biggest uh, student protest in Quebec history, which really does say something. There were, there were roughly uh, 200,000 people in attendance on Thursday, November 10th. It was an incredible uh, show of uh, political power and popular force. Um, and the protest was against a uh, impending tuition hike of uh, 75% hike of $1,625. That'll be phased in over five years. Um, we're already facing tuition in Quebec. They've been ongoing since uh, 2007. Um, but this rate uh, increases is significant. Uh, roughly 1,000, sorry, roughly 7,000 students uh, or, or Quebec citizens will be unable to um, uh, participate in, in post-secondary education as a result of these hikes. That's a conservative estimate. So that's bare bones. Mm. How uh, has uh, this uh, strike uh, distinguished itself from past uh, student strikes? One thing that uh, I will say, which is very encouraging about the strike, uh, was the uh, very strong presence of other unions. This wasn't just a student movement. Uh, This was uh, a popular movement with broad representation from public, private, uh, sector unions, um, and and also uh, citizens at large, uh, community groups, and so on. And I think that's very important to stress. Uh, I think that's also what really distinguishes it from uh, uh, from some previous uh, action, student action. So, uh, what is likely to to bring this uh, strike to a close? Uh, will the uh, there be a, at least a partial capitulation on the part of the government, or uh, will there be some sort of uh, other action, uh, draconian or otherwise, taken uh, against the, the the student activists? Yeah, uh, the the current Shari government uh, remains uh, completely intransigent. Uh, Thursday was an initial show of force. Um, but there's going to be more actions and more significant actions as well. Uh, there's talk of, uh, widespread talk, of a general unlimited student 
student strike in uh, the new year, around February. And uh, many of us are actively working to broaden that general strike mandate uh, to encourage other public and private sector unions to take part. Um, this is all in the context of uh, a Liberal government that, uh, using their own words, uh, wants to, to slay the, the so-called sacred cows of Quebec. Uh, that includes accessible education, uh, health care, and hydroelectricity. They're, they're doing this uh, to tackle uh, provincial debt levels, which are high um, in the industrial world, uh, but they can uh, tackle these debt levels by other means. Uh, just to give a quick example, uh, Quebec uh, has the lowest corporate tax rate in North America, or one of the lowest corporate tax rates in North America, uh, certainly below Texas even. And uh, so when the finance minister here, Raymond Bachon, talks about sacred cows, uh, I really think that he's talking about uh, the corporations rather than uh, our education system. Mm. Um, so the, the strike uh, didn't do much, It was, but it did show that we're certainly united against this government and its approach to tackling the debt uh, issue. Um, and it's going to grow, and I believe it most certainly will extend to a general strike uh, in the new year. And uh, the question is how widespread will that general strike be? Uh, will it include other unions, uh, and and how broad and sustained will the strike be? Uh, and then maybe we'll see some movement from the government, but uh, uh, the Shari liberals are, really are uh, drawing some lines in the sand and uh, certainly turning into a bit of a class warfare. Well, uh, at this uh, stage in our history, and we're seeing such uh, this renewed uh, citizens' activism uh, against uh, what's going on uh, in Canada and around the world. We, we really welcome uh, your assessment of these ongoing events. Thank you very much, Matthew Brett, for sharing them with Alert. My pleasure. And uh, Alert has been speaking with Matthew Brett. Uh, he is an organizer with the Forum to Resist the Conservatives. He spoke to us from Quebec. After several weeks of facing citizen protests and lobbying, the Obama administration recently announced he would delay his decision to authorize the creation of TransCanada's Keystone XL oil pipeline from the Alberta tar sands to the Gulf of Mexico until after the 2012 presidential election. This would seem to be a blow to the Alberta energy sector, but is it? To help us examine this latest development in context is Gordon Laxer. Gordon Laxer is co-director of the Parkland Institute and professor of political economy at the University of Alberta. So welcome to Alert, Gordon. Okay, nice to be here. Could you explain to us, uh, first of all, how critical was this uh, Keystone XL pipeline in terms of serving uh, uh, Canadian uh, political and economic interests? Hmm. Well, it's certainly uh, very important for the oil interests uh, centered in Alberta. I don't know that they're the same as Canadian economic and political interests. They're uh, largely foreign-owned, and they're centered on um, exporting as much of the, um, well, now the majority of it is bitumen. It's not conventional oil. They want to get as much out of it as possible, uh, out of 
uh, be able to export as much as possible. And the uh, Keystone XL is very important to that. Alberta is landlocked. And so if you don't have enough pipeline capacity to get it to Oceanside, you don't get the international price for oil. So for the big companies like Exxon and Shell and uh, the other uh, 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 giant multinationals, it's very important. I'm not sure that it's, um, it's good for the interests of Albertans. I don't see the, uh, the interests of Albertans being exactly the same as the interests of the oil industry. Hmm. Well, what, what do you think is the likelihood that uh, President Obama or a successor will ultimately authorize this pipeline? It still looks like it's fairly good chance that it will be authorized. <clears throat> um, the, the story keeps changing, but uh, uh, the, originally we heard that, is, that uh, the decision, the State Department, that they're, they're going to postpone the decision uh, for about 18 months, certainly until after the tw- uh, 2012 um, presidential election. But there just was announced today uh, an, ag- an agreement seems to be between the Trans-Canada Pipeline and the governor of Nebraska uh, to reroute the uh, uh, a proposal to reroute the pipeline through Nebraska. Um, and if that goes through, then the Nebraska legislature, it might uh, give the, it sounds like it will give the Keystone XL a, a better chance of survival. Because there were there were two groups that opposed in the United States, two major groups that opposed this pipeline. One were the environmentalists, who are just opposed to the tar sands because it's dirty oil. It, it uh, produces a lot more carbon emissions, and the idea was if if you know they could shut it uh, shut down the pipelines, then Alberta eventually Alberta would not be able to produce uh, uh, the the that oil or at least expand it. The second group is um, people in Nebraska who are very worried about the Ogallala Aquifer. The, uh, it's a very dry state, um, and uh, you know if this um, uh, huge aquifer got contaminated by oil, it would uh, ruin um, life for the majority of Nebraskans. They would you know have to pack up and leave. And what TransCanada seems to have done is it seems to be making a deal with the Nebraska. Legislature, the the governor is Republican, but he's been opposed to this pipeline on local grounds that it would hurt, um, it, it, it would be dangerous for um, this uh, water aquifer. So, if TransCanada can make a deal with Nebraska to reroute the pipeline through the Sandhills, the uh, the very um, uh, environmentally uh, fragile region of Nebraska, then it sounds like the pipeline might go through. Interesting. Uh, are there uh, other, uh, do you see indications, uh, we've already heard some signals about uh, uh, developing pipelines westward to satisfy uh, Asian markets. Uh, are there any indications that uh, those are, are going to proceed as well? Yes, uh, there has been a proposal on the table for um, a number of years now to build the gateway pipeline, as it's called, from Edmonton to Kitimat on the B.C. coast, uh, well north of Vancouver, um, uh, near Prince Rupert, and the uh, the oil would then, most of it would probably go to China. Now, this does, this represents a big change in Canadian policy. For the last two decades, the oil industry based in Alberta, and I don't call it the Canadian oil industry, and it's mainly foreign-owned, 
has been uh, totally focused on um, satisfying American oil demand and American um, energy security. Not focused at all on Canadian energy security, but, but American energy security. And now that they see that there may be some blockages to exports to the United States, are looking for um, a second market. Um, this is to reduce the risk of, uh, you know, what happens if we get somehow get uh, not shut out of the American market, but certainly re- reduced um, uh, export capacity. Where can we send this oil? And China is the obvious um, other market. Um, one good thing about this is that it actually gets uh, Canadians talking about what our energy policy should be, and should there be a Canadian energy policy, and it should should it serve Canadians? Uh, you know, taking us out of just that um, total um, focus on on the United States. Hmm. That that does seem uh, rather interesting, especially in the context of the uh, concerns around the. the the security and prosperity partnership and this whole idea of of a North American energy policy as opposed to, uh, as you say, a, a national energy policy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, no one's mentioning this, but uh, in NAFTA, there is a clause there, the, uh, energy, the uh, uh, proportionality clause, which says that Canada must continue to export the same percentage of energy, so that's oil, natural gas, even electricity, as it has in the past three years. Uh, if there is a pipeline uh, gets built to the west coast, the gateway, and there's other pipelines that are suggested, it will reduce the percentage of exports to the United States. It would actually violate NAFTA. Um, but would the big oil companies um, br- um, actually bring up the proportionality clause? Would they actually try to invoke that uh, if it's in their interest to actually export to China because uh, they'll they'll get a good price? And they they um, might be unlikely to bring a, a challenge to NAFTA on that basis. So it, 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 it's a it is a it is a change in orientation in the energy policy. Hmm. And um, also, uh, you mentioned earlier about the role of, of foreign investors. How has uh, have they reacted uh, to this? Uh, I guess this change in plan. What what is what what sorts of disincentives uh, besides this might they be facing in terms of future further development of the tar sands? Well, if um, eventually if they, uh, there's not enough pipeline capacity to export um, to Oceanside, where, wherever that ocean is, that ocean could be, we've talked about the Pacific, we've talked about the Keystone XL getting down to the Texas Gulf, there's another plan to bring oil um, to the Atlantic and even export to the United States and even um, to Texas from Montreal with a pipeline down to uh, Portland, Maine. Um, and so as long as it, uh, you can get it to Oceanside, it's, the oil companies can get a good price. If it is because Alberta is landlocked, if the pipeline capacity is not sufficient, what happens is that the price of the um, the bitumen, the, the uh, Alberta crude, is lower than the world price. It makes it less uh, profitable to be expanding uh, the tar sands. And what will happen eventually, if, if the, there isn't sufficient pipeline capacity, is that there would uh, either be a slowdown in the expansion of the, of the tar sands or a complete stop because it would no longer be profitable. Hmm. 
And uh, finally, you, as you mentioned, uh, Alberta, the, the oil uh, reserves in Alberta, it, it's in a land, it's landlocked. Yes. But at the same time, uh, there's a big energy demand uh, out in eastern Canada, Quebec and the Maritimes, yes. and they are relying on oil from sources other than Alberta. So okay. how is there a way of, of resolving that quandary? Uh, Yes, there is. I mean, the, the Eastern Canada imports most of its oil from offshore. They get foreign oil. We're actually, Canada is as dependent on OPEC countries on the Middle East to get oil as uh, the United States is, but we never talk about energy security. So one plan is to take uh, the oil industry is and the, and the Enbridge pipeline, which is a competitor of TransCanada, uh, plan is to take it to Montreal from Sarnia, Ontario, um, and part of it would go to Quebec, but most of it would be exported. Um, there are those environmentalists, including myself, who would say, let's supply Canadians with their own oil, and then let's do that first. Let's make sure Canadians um, are, have a security of supply. But let us not use tar sands oil to do that. We actually have enough conventional oil in Canada to supply our own people, and it is less dirty oil. Um, and it's, so we actually produce about as much conventional oil as Canadians consume in oil. And if we reoriented a policy instead of this export mentality, you know, export to the United States, we can't do that, export to China, I think we should reorient and say, let's supply Canadians first, um, and let's stay with conventional because the tar sands oil cannot be greened. It is an environmental disaster, and it is not good for Albertans because... Alberta is going to be is is uh, going to be stuck with this environmental disaster, and the rest of the world is going to move on from oil, and Alberta is going to be stuck in the fossil fuel belt, very much like the rust belt of the auto industry in Michigan, Ohio, and Ontario. Well, Gordon Laxo, I really appreciate uh, your um, insights into these uh, developments in uh, Canada's uh, energy sector. So, thank you very much for sharing them with Alert. Very nice to be here. And that was Gordon Laxer. He is the co-director of the Parkland Institute and also a professor of political economy at the University of Alberta. If it's November, there must be a new crop of censored stories to consider. Every year at about this time, Project Censored publishes its list of 25 important stories that didn't make the news over the previous year. It's a telling outline of information elite authorities don't want you to have. Winnipeg writer and broadcaster Leslie Hughes has had a close look at this year's list, and she's here to share what she found with us. You may remember her from her days as co-host of Alert Radio. Welcome back to Alert, Leslie. Thanks, Ashley. To start off, why don't you remind us who the Project Censored people are and how they put this list together? Well, Project Censored is kind of an offshoot, a product of the... Uh, Media Freedom Foundation, which is out of uh, Sonoma State University in California. And it goes back, actually, to Watergate days, just after Watergate, when particular media scholars were trying to figure out how Nixon could have got reelected as quickly as he did after the Watergate scandal. And um, how it has worked since then and continues to work is that you have a, a network of academics and student interns who work together 
And uh, basically, they take nominations from the public. They recruit nominations. Then the student researchers um, go to work and document and source the stories to make sure they're absolutely authentic. <clears throat> then all the nominations go to academic judges, many of whom are media professionals. And uh, together they, um, they rate the stories in order of their uh, importance. So that's essentially how it's looked, and then it, how it looks, and then it's published in a book. This year's book is about 500 pages, and you know it's considered a kind of a guide to uh, media activism. Is there anything new about this year's list? Well, actually, there is. First of all, this is the 30, 35th anniversary of its publication, uh, which is quite an achievement for an alternative. Uh, uh, piece of journalism that it has been growing for 35 years. I think that's an exceptional achievement, and uh, of course, it's been growing in its credibility as as well. Now, last year, one uh, sort of for me anyway, one primary theme emerged, and that was the category of SCADs, S C A D S, SCADs, or state crimes against democracy, and the state referring to either uh, state or federal offenses against the idea of democracy. And this year, it seems to me that what you've got is a focus on um, on a NATO-U.S. military media complex, kind of the latest twist on Eisen, Eisenhower's complex, and, uh, and how this group together actually att- attempts to, and succeeds much of the time, in managing the news. The other thing is in the structure of the book, Ashley, this year um, it's offering what they call censored news clusters. In other words, uh, this time instead of just listing separate stories that deliberately didn't make the news, now, now the scholars are looking at the architecture of those stories and trying to explain how, how they actually work together and what their combined impact is. It's too much to expect listeners to keep all 25 of these stories on the list in their heads at once, but can you comment on, say, the top 10? Now, the reason I'm laughing is that, you know, I'm just going to caution people here that I'm not making this up. I am not making this up because, you know, and and, uh, neither is anybody else. And uh, on the one hand, it sounds like, you know, a conspiracy theorist feature movie, not just dream, but but epic movie. But you have to remember that uh, all of this has been sourced and validated as documented. Um, I'll I'll just mention um, perhaps some of the top five. I think that's probably uh, as much as my tiny brain can manage. But at the top of uh, of the list, you have the fact that more American soldiers have committed suicide than have died in combat for two years in a row. And you can see that this story would have a, certainly a negative impact on the public and support for, for the various wars that uh, the Americans are, are conducting at the moment. Uh, a second story is a r- rather a sinister one in that um, uh, the U.S. military is apparently getting very good at manipulating social media and um, in, in this case, what's happened is that a, docu- uh, a, a documented contract has been awarded to uh, a company, I think it's in California, who, who will uh, then be employing disinformants 
if if you excuse that expression, it's a new one, but it's necessary. Disinformants who will, uh, each of whom will create as many as fifty uh, pseudo identities and start a conversation which either confuses uh, political, especially foreign policy issues, um, or will sort of enhance the the, the the idea of popular support for uh, the government. So now you, you begin to see why I'm, I'm saying you have to remember that these stories are, have actually been authenticated. A, a third story uh, is that Obama has, um, has organized what is called an international assassination campaign. But uh, this is not so much a, an Obama initiative as what is called a leftover idea from um, the administration of George Bush. And uh, what it means is that... Uh, the presidential uh, personality has the right to determine uh, who should be on a death list as presenting a threat to American society. And in fact, recently, the highest court in America declined to rule on uh, a few cases, which uh, they said were, uh, quote, unreviewable, unquote, meaning out of their jurisdiction which is really quite astonishing and, and to me bears, bears kind of uh, nasty reminiscences to the uh, Nazi era. Uh, another story in the uh, top five is the um, uh, fuzzy bear Google, uh, who apparently continues to spy on people collecting um, emails and phone numbers and addresses and information about people who um, come, swim into their ken and uh, evidently, they you know maintain that they are innocent, but but this um, but they seem to be getting better at it. I think is the point that this year's uh, censored list is trying to make. And then there's a, a very controversial story also in the top ten, and that is with reference to the United States Army, which is um, initiating a program um, which appears to be a very positive thing. Uh, I think it's called the CSF. Comprehensive Soldier Fitness, which is which they claim is designed to prevent the consequences of trauma in uh, in battle. That would be physical, but especially emotional or psychological tra- trauma. The problem is that on uh, on second thought, uh, many experts are saying that it's a program in desensitizing people to uh, to criminal acts, and, and and that becomes pretty scary when when you look at it that way. So. There you have just five of the top ten of the top twenty-five stories, and uh, you can see that uh, it's a it's a very dark list indeed. What might we conclude from looking at those top stories? Well, I think we need to 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 consider very seriously that um, the invasion of privacy, which began in uh, post nine eleven USA continues, the invasion of privacy continues and becomes more sophisticated, and also that, that the, the paranoia industries in the United States uh, continue to be incredibly well-funded and well-resourced, and, uh, and, and increasingly beyond the, the challenge of, uh, of uh, the public or even the purview of the public. And the, the other thing is, and I, I expect that, although this is only a non-American would perceive this, um, and that is that um, if the rest of the world views the United States as, as, a, as a superpower on its knees, 
uh, you know, owing to financial and political decline. Uh, evidently, the elite uh, secret authorities do not share that. They haven't figured that out, and they're still busy, busy trying to um, trying to build an empire. This report focuses on American stories. Do you think that this is still relevant to Canadians? Well, I do. It, it has inspired, uh, of course, the Canadian Project Censored List, which you can uh, pursue yourself on the Internet. Um, but there are also a number of international stories here that are of great interest to people in, in any country, one being the um, uh, global labor abuses, and in particularly in China, uh, many uh, as a result of, uh, of Western demands, and rising food prices, which, uh, which would appear to, to be just at the beginning of its uh, crisis stage, and the success of international polluters. So certainly there is a lot here that will interest Canadians. How can we participate in Project Censored? Well, of course, you can, uh, you can look for the book that we're talking about this year, the, the uh, 2012 report, and there's a lot of information about it that's available at no cost uh, on the Internet. You can actually nominate uh, a story, if you, if you like, and you would do that at uh, projectcensored.org. And uh, interestingly enough, they have now started a radio show, not unlike Alert Radio, that, that you can uh, uh, click into or subscribe to if you care. And uh, it's, um, it's really quite in keeping with the spirit of Alert Radio. Well, thanks for speaking with us today. That's about all the time that we have, but we appreciate your insights as always. Oh, my pleasure, Ashley. I've been speaking with writer and broadcaster Leslie Hughes about this year's top 25 censored stories as published by the Media Freedom Foundation. The book is available at projectcensored.org. Hi, I'm Mitch Pollock. This is Music is a Weapon. And this week's show is about industrial accidents. And this, of course, is something that faces the working class everywhere all the time. Here to start is Ramblin' Jack Elliott with Engine 143. Swiftest on the line Running o'er the CNO road Just 20 minutes behind Running into Seville Headquarters on the line Receiving their strict orders From a station just behind His mother came to him with a bucket on her arm Saying, my darling son, be careful how you run For many a man has lost his life in trying to make lost time 
But if you run your engine right, you'll get there just on time. Up the road he darted against the rocks he crushed. Upside down the engine turned and Georgie's breast it smashed. His head was against the firebox door. The flames were rolling high. I'm glad I was born for an engineer to die on a C&O road. The doctor said to Georgie, my darling boy, lie still. Your life may yet be saved if it is God's blessed will. Oh no, cried George, that will not do. I want to die so free. Want to die for the engine I love. 143. The doctor said to Georgie, your life may not be saved. Murdered upon the railroad and laid in a lonesome grave. His head was covered up in blood in his eyes he could not see. And the very last words for George he said was nearer my God to thee. That was Ramblin' Jack Elliott with Engine 143. Now, the next song we're going to hear is a new song to me. It's called Duffy's Cut. It's by Christy Moore, and it's very self-explanatory. In the summer of 1832, the sailing ship John Stamp Tied up into the port of Pennsylvania up the ladder from the cargo deck Men and women crept Into the open skies above Do you smell a good fault you wrote Duffy's my name, I cut through stone Work for me, a money your own And dollars I'll pay you Fifty-seven men signed up Duffy promised to fill the cup If they cut the Malvern Valley up Mile 59 Had to be in time For the railway line From Ballyshannon and the Glenties They sailed right into hell They suffered like the weeping Christ Down Duffy's cut the sweat their blood Until this wishing world Where they're taken by the sickness Where they're hunted down like scum Was there poison in the water Was the cholera or murder The smoke that in the bullets From the barrel that the boss has
holy sisters, good people through and through, whispered prayers into the victims' ears. That's all they could do. How come the bosses had silence on their lips as fifty-seven Irish navvies were buried in a pit? No stone to mark their resting place, no one to mourn their passing. From Ballyshannon and the Glenties, they sailed right into hell. They suffered like the weeping Christ. Down Duffy's cut the sweater blood into this wishing well. Were they taken by the sickness? Were they hunted down like scum? Was the poison in the water? Was the cholera or murder the smoke that hit the bullets? From the barrel of the bosses gone In the summer of 1832 The sailing ship John Stamp Tied up into the port of Pennsylvania Town of Spring Hill, Nova Scotia, down in the dark of the Cumberland mine. There's blood on the coal and the miners lie in roads that never saw sun nor sky. Roads that never saw sun nor sky In the town of Spring Hill you don't sleep easy Often the earth will tremble and roll When the earth is restless, miners die of coal bone and the blood is the price of coal in the town of Spring Hill Nova Scotia late in the year of 58 the day still comes and the sun still shines but it's dark as the grave in the Cumberland mine dark as the grave in the Cumberland mine three days passed when the lamps gave out and Caleb rushed and got up and said We've no more water or light or bread So we'll live on songs and hope instead We'll live on songs and hope instead 
Listen for the shouts of the black-faced miners Listen through the rubble for the rescue teams Three hundred tons of coal and slag Hope imprisoned in the three-foot seam Hope imprisoned in the three-foot seam Twelve days passed and some were rescued Leaving the dead to lie alone Through all their days they dug a grave Two miles of earth is a marking stone Two miles of earth is a marking stone. That was the Dubliners with the Spring Hill Mine Disaster, of course, written by Ewan McCall and by Peggy Seeger. Before that, Christy Moore with Duffy's Cut. Next week's show is going to be kind of interesting. It's going to be a retrospective of pop diva Marianne Faithful singing a lot of very political, very socially conscious songs by all kinds of people who were not pop writers, including Bertolt Brecht. That's it for this week, folks. See you next week. I'm Mitch Pollock. This is Music is the Weapon. Solidarity. Well... That's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Andrew Valpi, assisted by Selena Surik. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. <laughs>